This podcast series is not meant for retail investors, but instead is meant for financial advice and investment professionals. Please refer to IMAP's website, imap.asn.au, for more details. Well, welcome to this podcast in the IMAP Independent Thought Series. And today, joining me on the podcast is Matthew Khalil from Janice Henderson. Matt is a portfolio manager in the Diversified Alternatives Funds at Janice Henderson. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for having me, David. So, Matt, if perhaps to start with, you could just talk a little bit about what are diversified alternatives and how exactly your fund works? Sure. So uh, we uh, have a team of portfolio managers and uh, a broader team that sits across a number of regions in Australia, London and the, and North America in, in a number of different offices. Uh, diversified, uh, that means by geography and by trading style and by the things that we hold in the fund. So we trade a lot of different things over all time horizons. Uh, we trade in all major sectors, so equities and bonds and commodities and currencies. So uh, it, it is truly a diversified product by what it's holding and where the portfolio managers are sitting and what they're trading. That's great. Okay. Well, that certainly gives us plenty to talk about. There's a lot of different things you're covering there. Maybe just to start off with, can we just chat about the macro environment? Because obviously, you know, inflation, interest rates, front of mind for everyone in the market and probably have been for the last 12 months at least now. And a lot of talk about recession potentially in the US, Europe, maybe not quite so much in Australia, but perhaps on the edge there, and interest rates have been going up very rapidly everywhere. And the RBA has now shocked people, I think, last week by suggesting there's several more rate hikes to come. What's your outlook for the world, Matt? And perhaps we'll go on afterwards and just talk about how that might impact where you're positioned. I think, to be completely frank, nobody, including central bankers, know what is going on. And that's not the fault of anybody. This is not speaking to the forecasting ability or uh, depth of knowledge anywhere. But you know, if you step back to January 2020 and you did your 10-year forecast, if you're an investment committee saying, what are the types of things we could see happening in the next decade that could come out of left field? I don't think there would have been a single investment committee saying within three years you're going to have a once-in-a-century pandemic uh, a land war in Europe, inflation, rising interest rates, all all within a three-year period. So the ability to forecast with those kinds of huge macro impacts uh, is, is very difficult. You, you don't envy the central bankers having to try and work out is inflation transitory or structural? Mm-hmm. Uh, do we think inflation is going to sit at you know 3% or more on average for the whole decade as it did in the 70s, or is it quickly coming back and staying there? Uh, there's now an increasing chance you could have some form of soft landing, which, again, has never happened before. So I think the one thing you can count on is a lot of volatility and this, this uh, event risk remaining uh, front and centre as the world goes into really, I think, going to be a very interesting period and interesting in a, a good and bad way. Yeah, I think m- most people could certainly agree the volatility. And as you say, it's 
it's hard to know what's going to happen next. You know, mm. We've gone from wars in Ukraine to cyclones in New Zealand, all sorts oh. of unexpected events. There's also a lot of talk out there about lower returns going forward, you know, that 8 9 10% even returns of super funds and the like have been getting the last 10 years, perhaps not for the decade ahead. Is that something you would agree with, that we're looking for sort of lower for longer? It depends on your viewpoint. If you've if you've done the right thing and saved a lot of money, you'd be laughing right now because for the first time in a long time, you're getting paid to be prudent and disciplined and save money. I think uh, the big winners are people that have actually done the right thing and saved. A higher cash rate by default uh, reduces the value of a lot of things when you discount them. Uh, I think people have to get used to the fact that, you know, China, which was really a growth engine for so much of the world for many, many decades. And, and, you know, you've taken a lot of people and to be quite frank, you know, they've done a brilliant job in bringing you know, over half a billion people into the world as consumers. That's behind the world. You've now got demographic issues and debt to deal with. I just think if, if, you, if you're expecting the returns of 8 to 12%, from a stock standard portfolio of stocks and bonds over the next 10 to 20 years, I think that assumption, we would say, is challenged. Uh, and you have to say, are we in a regime which is conducive to stocks and bonds as your, your bulk holdings or do you need other things in there? And it's not just alternatives, it's real assets and things that tend to be robust and anti-fragile with respect to inflation or benefit from that. And, you know, one asset class would be commodities. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I guess, you know, just touching on the bond equities, first of all, I mean, we've seen quite strong correlation between bonds and equities in recent period, which is probably an unusual thing. Is that something you see continuing or do you think that's that has been a sort of one-off I think if we're near the end of that tightening path by all central banks, it looks like the Bank of Canada's stopped or is on hold for the moment. We're, you know, we're probably close in Australia within two to three raises. Uh, and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel for other central banks. I think at that point, you can assess where bonds are sitting and where inflation is and real yields and make the case that, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve, for example, where real yields are now, that's that's quite tight, especially if you think inflation is going to fall. So central banks have probably done most of the work they need to, uh, which would mean that it's very unlikely, but not impossible, that bonds will do what they did again in 2022. It's, I mean, you know, I think we've both seen a few cycles. Uh <laughs> Yes. I don't think we've ever seen. I think the last year was in the 70s or the 1920s where that 60-40 portfolio lost so much and bonds lost more than equities. I don't think you'll see yes. that again. Right, right. Um, commodities, Matt, you, you mentioned just briefly there was something you think would do well, particularly out of inflation. I mean, the commodity prices, energy, obviously, but a lot of others have been strong in the last year or so. But is that something you see continuing because of the inflation outlook rather than just because of supply issues? I think when you have two or three very large political, geopolitical and investment reasons driving commodities, um, you know, just take ESG. ESG is automatically a constraint 
on oil companies investing in further oil development. Whether you agree with the merits or not of more oil in 20, 30 years, the simple fact of the matter is oil demand is going to be with us at least for the next couple of decades, but you're not getting a supply response. Uh, demand is almost back to where it was near record highs. Uh, you're not finding enough copper. You know, if you, there's some studies showing the amount of large copper discoveries globally, they've almost disappeared. Uh, so our view, honestly, is with that lack of investment and larger deposits and deposits closer to ground being harder to find. Mm-hmm. That is inflationary. We need a lot of copper, nickel, lithium, and, and all sorts of resources. If we're going to build out this infrastructure and electrify the grid, it's, it is inflationary. If we're deglobalizing and building supply chains regionally as opposed to what we've had, which is a global network, uh, a globalized world, that is inflationary. I honestly believe we're just in a very different regime where uh, commodities uh, will reflect supply constraints will be the cause of inflation. And unless there's significant investment in that sector, uh, you're going to continue to see elevated inflation from commodities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we're seeing that very much locally as a prime example, isn't it? Where several states in Australia have banned gas exploration and then wonder why gas prices are surging. Yeah, and you can have this perverse, you know, perverse consequences. We're in Europe, you know, with the right intentions and good intentions, Germany ended up using coal and wood for energy last year simply because nuclear reactors were being decommissioned. And and again, we're not talking about the rights and wrongs of this or climate change. It's just the simple facts on the ground. The world still basically relies on fossil fuels and will for some time. That's a statement Mm. of fact. Where we want to be, that's a very different thing. Sure. Just um, still on the commodities, Matt, I saw on your website was an interesting research piece where you suggested that commodity carry was provide a signal for asset allocation. Can you maybe just give us a, a simple explanation of, of, of how that works and, and what it might be telling us at the moment? Yeah, sure. So when you look at commodity markets, uh, if you take oil markets, for example, and, and you know, we trade in futures, you're not only trading at the, the front end or the spot spot market, you're trading all across uh, across multiple time horizons. And the benefit of using futures, uh, it, it's very liquid. So you can liquidate that position, you can put that position on, but you get pricing out over almost 10 years. And uh, when you're in an environment where there's supply constraints, um, we saw that last year with European gas prices, there's an immediate need to secure physical gas. Uh, You don't have the luxury of waiting three to six months if you're going to freeze. So what you see is uh, prices nearer the present time much higher than prices in the future. And so you pick up uh, what's called a positive carry where uh, if you're taking that trade, uh, effectively what you're doing is you're rolling your futures contracts and picking up a positive return uh, because you're providing liquidity to the market. That indicates a level of heightened supply constraints and it's a very uh, bullish signal for commodities. And when you look at the broad index of commodities, such as the Bloomberg Commodity Index, most of the time you don't get a positive carry holding futures and then rolling them. But 
the last two years you've been picking up a few percent a year as a positive carry, almost akin to a dividend in the stock market, which is unusual, which speaks mm. to how supply-constrained commodities are in the broad sense. Right, right. Okay, thanks for that. So uh, commodities, you, you're positive on commodities, and we've talked about the outlook for bonds and equities and potential weak or or even negative returns in the year or so ahead. So what other asset classes are you positive on in your funds and where else are you putting putting the money? When we look at the opportunity set for the multi-strategy fund, uh, if, you, if, you, if you start with equities, you know, last year we, we were positive slightly for the fund, but, uh, you know, we would have liked to have made more money. The, the thing that did hold the fund back from, from doing better was uh, just the lack of opportunities, uh, IPO, activity dropped, uh, issuance of bonds uh, really fell off uh, a cliff. What we see happening once central banks have finished their tightening cycle is a lot more corporate activity, uh, M&A, issuance of debt and equity, and that's good for, for a lot of the strategies that we employ, uh, which are aligned upon transaction and capital flows. Uh, fundamentally, we think Assets such as gold will do particularly well in this environment. And, um, you know, where, where you do have the ability to hold cash, you're getting paid to hold cash and be patient for the first time mm. in a long time. So yeah. if you're not constrained and you've got the ability to sit back and wait for opportunities, uh, for the first time in many years, you're getting paid a decent amount on your, on your cash holdings and your collateral uh, where you can be patient and wait for opportunities and not have to take a lot of risk. I mean, one of those, as you know, one of the uh, unfortunate outcomes is you chase risk and you go up the risk spectrum when you, and when cash rates are so low. Uh, we now have attractive cash rates globally where people can, you know, you can get a term deposit with a bank or buy a government bond and get something decent. So yes, I think yeah. the things you can hold now uh, and the portfolio you can hold now is quite different than what you would have held a few years ago, I think, going, and, and, and that will be the case going forward. Maybe just one last question about the funds before we can talk maybe some, some more sort of general issues about where they might fit into a portfolio and so on. And that's the, you know, volatility, I mean, as we've talked about, and I'm sure everyone's aware, the last two, three years, volatility has been incredible whether it be COVID wars or or whatever and we, we're talking about volatility continuing to be high is that a, a plus for your sort of fund? how have the funds performed the last year or two during these very volatile periods like COVID and so on yeah we, we, we're fortunate in that uh, again we, we're not constrained we can we can take risk on uh, the fund tends to be relatively neutral uh, we can take on uh, and and buy protection. For example, you know one of the one of the sleeves that the fund uses is called portfolio protection, where we can buy uh, downside puts and buy protection on the market. And that did incredibly well. For example, in February March of 2020, where you get these once in 10 or 15 year events, where you get a significant short sharp shock and markets fall very quickly in a very short amount of time. That's not something you can predict or model up, but uh, you know, one of the tenets that the lead PMs have and we all have is you wanna be positively exposed to that volatility uh, by having that convex payoff profile. We have trend following 
which did particularly well last year. It did well in 08, where uh, volatility and extended moves or short, sharp moves in either direction are beneficial for the fund. All right, thanks, Matt. Let's just talk about alternatives in a portfolio and where they fit in. I mean, I guess a lot of people think when you hear the word alternatives and hedge funds, they think of high risk. Is that necessarily the case? I mean, can it be part of a balanced or even a defensive portfolio? I think it's absolutely critical that you include, and again, if we're entering a regime which is not going to be like we've seen for the last three to four decades, uh, where a 60-40 portfolio won't make enough to get you where you need to get. Alternatives become absolutely critical. And it's such a broad term. Uh, you start by saying, well, you've got liquid alternatives and uh, illiquid alternatives. So you can look at private equity. Uh, you can look at direct property. I mean, they, they fit into that alternative asset class. They offer certain benefits, but one of the things they don't offer is liquidity if you need it. Uh, the one thing that liquid alternative managers of all types can offer and the better ones do offer is really good risk control. Uh, if you look at, say, trend following or the product that we are, you know, good multi-strategy funds, uh, the, the people running them that have lasted more than a cycle tend to be much better risk managers than return seekers. Uh, first and foremost, control your risks. Uh, don't blow up. Protect your clients. Protect capital. And then when the opportunities arise, you can take advantage of that. And I think that's the key. Uh, and again, when you've got the ability to control risk, you can then target certain levels of volatility. So when you look across the alternative spectrum, you've got managers targeting volatility of 15 to 20%, which is quite volatile. Uh, we, we tend to sit at the other end of the spectrum where we want to sit our volatility between about 4 to 8%. So we'd categorise what we do as defensive alternatives. And, um, you know, as with anything, you have to diversify. You don't just hold one thing. If you're going to put together a, an alternative portfolio, it should be made up of various components with various liquidity profiles and uh, risk profiles. And that should hopefully, if they're true to label, if they are alternative by nature, if they perform well when markets aren't, you know, stock and bond markets aren't doing well, then that definitely has a positive impact. I mean, a good example of that is trend following as an index. There's an index called the, the SG Trend Index. That was up over 20% last year, which looks at a group of managers that are trend followers. That would have been incredibly additive had you had enough of that in your portfolio last year. That did similarly well in 2008. Commodities were up 15 to 20%. Uh, gold held its own. Uh, you know, the multi-strategy fund we run and others were up. Macro funds had a good year. So yeah, this is why we would argue that it's it's actually critical to have good alternatives in your portfolio with the right type of liquidity. Okay. And within a managed account, is it possible to put something like your, your global alternatives into a managed account? Yeah, our, our product sits on a lot of platforms. Because we're trading in effectively, you know, listed instruments globally, 
Uh, the liquidity profile allows for that you know, daily pricing and liquidity. Uh, and there's, you know, if you look at a lot of long short funds or trend following funds, you know, the alternative products that are listed trading in listed instruments, uh, yeah, they sit well within a broader portfolio because they should be able to offer pretty good liquidity conditions. Right. So there's no issues with liquidity lockups and things like you hear from some of the, you know, private equity and, and those types of funds. That's right. But look, those also have a role, but I think people just have to be cognizant that look, you have to assume, and I think Warren Buffett had a quote where you buy a stock and assume you're not going to look at it or the market's going to be open for 10 years. I think you have to have that same approach with these other alternative funds. They're, they're not bad in and of themselves if they've invested in a good asset that's a liquid. That's just the nature of what you're investing in. You shouldn't have more than a certain amount of your portfolio in that. It doesn't say you shouldn't have it, but if you, you should definitely have some liquid alternatives that offer that kind of tail protection. And do you find you spend a lot of time sort of having to educate advisors about the funds? I mean, is it something that's well understood or you get a lot of questions from oh, people? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And we actually enjoy it because, uh, you know, the things we're holding in the fund are quite different to what you'd typically see in a, uh, a 60-40 portfolio based in Australia, for example, because we are part of a, a global group, Janice Henderson, we get offered IPOs and placements in stocks all through Europe and America and Asia. You know, we can participate in uh, IPOs in Hong Kong, in Sweden, in, you know, all, all, all types of jurisdictions. We can take equity and bond exposure. We trade commodities and currency. So uh, there, there is a lot of education, but I think the critical thing is you, you've got to understand liquidity profile, and you've really got to trust the managers, and that's really, really important. But in the end, the best advice, as with anything, is you know, you've got to have an understanding of the return profile. What types of returns should this fund give you through the cycle? When will it make money? When will it tend to flatline? And if you blend that with other things, you should get a decent result over time. That's great. All right. Thanks. Look, we've, we've covered a lot of things there, Matt. I think that that's really useful. I think we, we've definitely agreed that we're still in for interesting times for at least the next few years and potentially yeah. lower returns than people have been used to, but that doesn't mean you can't diversify into some of these different assets and perhaps more, more so that you should. Um, it just remains for me then to thank Matthew Khalil from Janice Henderson for joining us today. And also, before we finish, a reminder that we have the IMAP Portfolio Conf Management Conferences coming up soon in March in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. There's details of all of those on our website now, including some of the, the speakers and the topics that are being covered at each venue. And you're able to register there on the website now. So please have a look at that.